Everyone needs that kind of safe place. In the storms of life, the difficulties, the questions that we have, we need somebody who knows us well and loves us greatly. Think about how safe you actually are in Jesus, how powerful He is, how loving He is, how, how much we're dependent on Him and He is not dependent on us. And you think about your deathbed and you're drawing your last breath and you have no ability to even keep yourself alive. He's the one that brings you home. He's the one that makes sure you cross the river and are safely home. And someone who is that safe a place for you can surely help you navigate life with all its twists and turns now. If that greatest challenge of all, when all your abilities are reduced to nothing, he brings you to himself. Well, in the epistle of 1 John, our text begins this morning with the words, My little children... That's the way the Apostle John addresses those that he writes. His language reveals his tender care for them as one who is far along in his own life's journey and is deeply concerned for those who follow. He writes with family affection, my little children, with the compassion of a father looking out for his dear children. His tone reminds us that the wise warnings he will give to us in this letter, come from a heart of love. The truth is that all of us are on our first journey through life. We may be in the early or late stages, but it's still our first time. We need the compassionate guidance of God, the tender shepherding of Christ and His apostles, and the comfort and direction of the Spirit of God to navigate our way through all the minefields of life in this world. You know, it's much easier to receive the counsel of someone you know cares about you than to listen to someone who's just barking orders. The Apostle John is known as the Apostle of Love for good reason. And this morning he gives loving guidance to us regarding the lifestyle of those who truly know God. Follow with me as I read in 1 John 2, beginning in verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. The lifestyle of those who truly know God, is marked first, according to verses 1 and 2, by an aversion to sin, an aversion to sin. Second, by a high regard 
for God's word, verses 3 through 5. And then finally, getting more personal, an imitation of God's Son in the second part of verse 5 through verse 6. These things mark those who truly know God, for when God takes over our life, He begins to transform that life from the inside out. So consider with me first what John leads off with, and that is this aversion to sin. In verse 1, he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. Now, John has just declared a couple verses back in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But John doesn't want us to jump to the conclusion that, that sinning is consequently no big deal. There were legalists in John's day who falsely charged that the gospel of the apostles preached, the, the gospel that they preached actually sanctioned and promoted sinful living. We remember in the book of Romans that, that Paul addresses these false teachers. They argued that the Christian gospel led to the logical conclusion that since God will forgive me through Christ, it's okay if I yield to sin and even pursue it. The false teachers that John is confronting by this point of the century are those who actually believed what the legalists falsely charged the apostles were preaching, that it's okay to pursue sin because God will forgive us anyway. They preached not law, but license. But such false teaching expresses an unrepentant spirit regarding sin. How can you love God, who is light, but also love darkness? The two don't go together. Both these false teachers and the legalists completely failed to account for the miraculous change of disposition regarding sin that happens when a person is born again by the Spirit of God. The indwelling Spirit of God energizes our desire to live in a way that's pleasing to God. It changes our heart toward God. Even though we still face temptations, our love affair with sin is over. We have come to know full well that our sin is killing us and damning us and, and wrecking our relationship with God and with others. And we now know that any appeal sin makes to us that somehow we'll be better off if we yield to it and live in it, it's nothing but a toxic lie. We want the peace and joy that healthy relationships bring us, not the devastation, not the corruption, not the degeneration and, and damage that sin brings because of love for God and love for others. And quite frankly, because we, we want happiness ourselves, we want to do right. And that's why people who truly belong to Christ have an aversion to sin and to sinning. They know what danger and damage that sin presents. They love God, not sin. So these false teachers of John's day also failed to appreciate the purpose of God's author of forgiveness and cleansing. The reality is that then when we human beings have no hope, we lose our will to fight. Legalism thrives on exaggerating man's power to fight sin and minimizing sin's power to dominate us. Those who try to make it by keeping the law of God 
either become proud because they've deceived themselves into thinking they can actually do it, or they fall into despair when they have the honesty to admit that they can't reach the goal no matter how hard they try. The false teachers try to quell that despair, try to get rid of the guilt by teaching that, well, sinning doesn't really matter. But what they were promoting was not victory over sin, but surrender to it. Not fighting sin, but accommodating it. Kind of like if you can't beat them, join them. God's promise of forgiveness and cleansing is necessary to our fighting against sin. Just think of any war that you've ever heard of. Think of even sports um, contest. What happens when one side or the other loses heart? When one side or the other thinks it's not possible for them to win? It makes it difficult for them to fight. It makes them difficult for them to hang in there. And we can't fight effectively against sinning if we have no hope of breaking free. If if we're worried that there's no way back to God, that there's no way to restore the relationship broken by sin, sin's stranglehold on us gets all the stronger. I mean, if it's no use, why try? And I think we've all been there. One of the tactics that Satan uses as the accuser of the brethren is, is to, to so pile on when we do sin that we, we feel like there's no hope, that it can ever be different. And that actually plays into his hands with, to, to make us more vulnerable to sinning than we would be if we actually believed that God would receive us. You know, if God will not welcome us to come to him for forgiveness and cleansing, what hope do we have? We would be afraid to come to him for help. And without his help, we can never live clean. So God's promise of forgiveness and cleansing is designed to help us recognize that we don't have to live under the power of sin. And, and whenever we do fall, we come to him to get that cleaned up and, and to move on. It's not that sin doesn't matter. It's that sin does matter and that God can actually free us from its guilt and its power. Paul Tripp put it this way, the gospel is not just a comfort, the gospel is a call. You cannot accept the comfort of the gospel without also accepting its call. In other words, God's provision of forgiveness and cleansing is not to give us freedom to sin, but to give us strength to sin less. Not to sin more, but to actually sin less. Our hope of victory through Christ strengthens our resolve and perseverance in the battle against sin. So the gospel brings comfort to us that our sin is not the final word. We can be cleansed. But, but our, the gospel also calls us to holy living, to walk with God. Even those with an aversion to sin... And those who battle regularly against it will fall to it sometimes. Sometimes we don't even know we've done it. It takes a brother or sister saying, hey, why did you say this? Or, you know, why did you do this? And, and, and we're kind of blind to it. Sin is not our pattern, but it happens. And our hatred for sin actually makes us grieve all the more when we do fall into it. In fact, one of the characteristics you find of those who have long been followers of Jesus as they grow uh, in the faith is, is they actually become more sensitive to, to the sins that they do commit. And, and they, are more, they are more hurt by it 
when they know they violated God's will. So, so how do we keep that guilt from crippling us? So John takes us back to a theme that he articulated in verse 7 of chapter 1 and also in verse 9 when he says in 1 John 2, second part of verse 1, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Here is our reason to have hope. Here is our reason to stay strong. Here is our reason to have short accounts with God, Jesus the Messiah, the God-man, Jesus, Yahweh saves, Savior King, the Messiah, the Anointed One, is the key to restoring us. And look at what John calls him. He is our advocate. This is the same word that he uses for the Holy Spirit, the comforter. But, but here the, the focus is one coming alongside as an advocate with the Father. He's our defense attorney. He's pleading our case. He's interceding with the judge of all the earth on our behalf. He's saying, I've paid for this one's sin. I've paid the full price. And therefore... The judgment has been diverted from this person to me. And this repentant person who believes in me is free then from condemnation. He is the righteous. Jesus has completely fulfilled the righteousness God's law demands. Um, He's sinless with no sin to atone for for himself so he can take my place. Now I can forgive another person, but, but I can't absolve them of their sin. Because I've got my own sin to deal with. Jesus had no sin of his own, so he could stand in our place. And then John calls him the propitiation. The propitiation. In other words, the blood sacrifice of Jesus on the cross completely satisfied the righteous wrath of God on sinners for the rebellion. Jesus, the infinite Son of God, bore the full divine punishment in his own body on the cross. He paid the penalty in full. There's nothing for me to add. There's nothing anybody else can do to make his sacrifice more powerful, more complete. It's paid in full. Now notice John's words, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What does he mean by that? Well, he doesn't mean that, that everybody's going to be saved. doesn't mean that everybody has their sins forgiven because we've been invited to, to come to God for forgiveness. That would contradict the gospel and what he's been teaching. He's saying that no matter what time and place sinners belong to, Jesus is the only one who can be the propitiation, the satisfaction for their sin. This is not a culture-bound solution. Sometimes people talk about Christianity as it's a Western religion. Well, did you ever notice where it came from? Like, it's not a Western religion. It's actually a worldwide religion, but it's not a Middle Eastern religion either where it originated. It's for all ethnicities. It's for every culture group. It's for for every time and place. It's for every sinner who will believe. The satisfaction of the wrath of God that Jesus' sacrifice achieves is infinite in its sufficiency. But only those who trust in him to cleanse them actually benefit from what he's done. People who truly know God show an aversion to sin in the way that they conduct their lives. They show that sin is not 
something to be tolerated in their own lives. They're, they're not okay with that. And so they, they come to Christ for cleansing, and they seek to follow God's will and so that they fall into sin as little as possible. Proverbs 28, 13, and 14, part of this was quoted earlier today after our confession today, today as a congregation. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Blessed, happy is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity because of our reverent love for God who is light. We have an aversion to the darkness of our own sin. So a believer is marked both by a desire to avoid sin and a desire to make things right when he or she does sin. So let me ask you this morning, what, what is your response to sin? Now, I'm not talking about your response to the sin of other people. That's easy. We know how people respond to the sin of, of other people. You just, you know, take a tour through social media, okay, uh, or newscasts or whatever. I mean, people are great at defining other people's sins. My question is, what are you doing with your own? What is your response to your own sin? Maybe you are among those like the false teachers of John's day who you're giving yourself a pass and, and really allowing it like a take up resonance, like you've got a spare room in your life and you're just letting the sin hang out there. Well, it has no claim on you anymore. You are owner-occupied by the Holy Spirit, so kick it out. Don't, don't let sin be a squatter in your life and take over territory it, it doesn't deserve. You need to hear the, the call of the gospel to holy living. And, and the Holy Spirit of God enables you to wage this war against your sin. But I also know, other brothers and sisters, that you're on the other end of the spectrum. Your tendency is to beat yourself up with guilt every time you sin. And, it, and it's like it cripples you and you, you can't get past it and you're weighed down by it. Well, you... You need the comfort of the gospel. You need to know that, you know, it's right for you to have this antipathy toward your sin, but, but you need to bring it, you need to bring it to Jesus. Like, it's not like he's going to be surprised. Like, when you come to Jesus, it's not like, oh, I can't believe that. You know, I've ever told somebody, you know, you've gone to somebody that you thought was safe to tell, and you say, I'm struggling with this, and they go, they're, they're shocked and like, they, they, they don't know what to do with it. And you, you go, oh no, I never should have said anything. Jesus is not that way. The, the reality is he knows all about it and he knows more about it than you know about it. He, he knows every motive of your heart. He knows wh what the situation was. He, he knows what he's doing in your life. And so just, you know, don't pretend. Don't pretend in front of the God who knows you completely. Lay it out and give it up and let him cleanse you and be free. He's already taken the punishment. You don't have to, you know, beat yourself to add more punishment. Um, this aversion to sin is just a part of the way we live. If you think about it, when you come to faith in Christ, you know, the, the message of the gospel is repent and believe. Turn from your devotion to sin to the Savior from sin. Well, well, once you become a believer, 
As you go through life, you don't quit trusting in Jesus. It's not like you trusted in Jesus one time on that particular night, and you never trusted in Jesus since. That's when you started trusting in Jesus. Well, by the same token, when, when you repent from your sin, you don't stop repenting. You, you don't suddenly say, well, I turn to Jesus now so I can welcome sin back. Sin's a friend. No, you know sin to be an enemy. You don't want anything to do with it. So you naturally have an aversion. People who, who have that disposition of heart mark themselves as those who actually know God. So, secondly, we see that there is a high regard for God's Word. And this, this stands to reason, because how do we know what sin is? How do we know what righteousness is but for God's definition? So, verse 3, by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. So this is about assurance. We know we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Remember that, that knowing him refers to an experiential knowledge of God, not just knowing about him. I mean, sometimes we'll refer to somebody in town and say, you know, do you know Jack Smith? I just pulled that out of the, hair, out of the air. So, so if your name is Jack Smith, I didn't mean to pick on you. Um, do you know Jack Smith? They say, oh, yeah, I know him. Okay, that's different from how well do you know Jack Smith? This is the kind of knowledge of, of an experiential knowledge to actually know God. And the commandments of God reveal His will for us. They, they tell us, you know, what pleases Him. You know, if you're, if you're married, you want to please your spouse, but you've got to have some level of communication to know what would please your spouse. And, and part of the marriage um, challenge is that can be a moving target, right? And your job is to stay close enough to your spouse that you're actually aware of what's going on so you can respond in the proper way. But your desire is to bring happiness to your spouse. You don't want your spouse going, oh, I wish I'd never done it. You know, but you want your spouse to be glad every day that he or she belongs to you and that, that you belong to him or her. So with God, we want to know what he wants. And, and this is the beauty of God's word. It's not burdensome. It's like, hey, you want to know what God desires? He's revealed it to us. Now, a person who knows God then wants to keep his commandments. He keeps his commandments. What does that mean? Well, it means a, literally a, a watchful care for something we count valuable it could be to guard it. To, it's sometimes translated to observe. It's the opposite of neglect or, or apathy or devaluing it or disregarding it or, or disobeying it. Now, now, John is not speaking of sinless perfection because that would contradict what he's just said in chapter 1. So it's not possible he's talking about that. Rather, John is referring to a heart disposition of watchful care over God's command with a desire to observe them, to obey them. In fact, Jesus uses the same word in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 20, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. 
So that, that's, it does mean obey, but, but, but there's, a, there's a flavor to it. There's a tone to it that you're, you're obeying because it matters to you. you. You value what he has commanded. Well, a false teacher or a fake Christian says, I know him, but does not treat God's commands this way. He or she doesn't exercise watchful care over them or hold on to them or observe them. Well, a person who says, I know God, and yet has that attitude for, for, toward what God has revealed and what God has commanded is a liar. And, and more than that, the truth is not in him. The truth of God is not taking possession of him, else it would have turned his or her heart toward valuing God's commands and observing him. People that are flippant about the scriptures and God's commands don't know him. I mean, this makes perfect sense, right? I mean, if you love somebody, you care. You you care what they want. So in contrast to this liar, in whom the truth does not reside, is the one who keeps his word. And notice John has kind of expanded this a little bit beyond just commands, but, but God's word. You know, what, what does a word do? A word takes a thought from one mind, puts it in a package, and delivers it to another mind. And so, you know, how often, going back to the, the marriage thing, or sometimes office difficulties, how often the problem is a lack of what? Communication. Like you're thinking you shared that, but you didn't. You're thinking the person understands, but they don't. You thought you understood, but you don't. Well, how are you going to solve that problem? With words. Okay? So God has made himself known through his word. God has let us know what pleases him through his word. And a person who knows God treasures all that God has said. 1 John 5, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. God's truth has captured this one's heart, and God's love has accomplished its intended goal. God's love for us actually evokes, spawns our love for him and whatever he has to say. We treasure the words of those we love. In fact, no doubt you've got somewhere tucked away, you, you've got some box, some place where you have the written words from someone you love. Maybe that person has gone on to glory, and, and one of your great treasures are words that person wrote to you before God took him or her home. When those words reveal what pleases God, we want to obey them. How could it be any different? Love drives obedience. Love makes us want to do what God wants. And love, the apostles and Christ teaches, fulfills the law. In other words, the things that God says we should do and not do are expressions of what love looks like. Proverbs 28, 9, if one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. So what do you mean by that? I thought prayer is a good thing. I'm, I'm worshiping. I'm praying. And lots of people pray, particularly in times of crisis. 
But, but how is it that prayer is an abomination, that prayer is like idolatry if we turn away our ear from hearing the law? Well, if you have a relationship of trust and love with God, it makes no sense that you would want to talk to Him but have no desire for Him to talk to you. That's weird. You, you want Him to tell you what He wants you to do. Well, one... One man puts it as that the proof of love is loyalty. Proof of love is loyalty. And so because of God's love for us and the resulting love of us for God, then we, we want to do, we want to keep his word. We want to value it and follow it and do what it says. In fact, this theme is throughout the word of God. Think about the gateway psalm of Psalm 1. Blessed or happy is the man who what? Delights in God's law. Who, who meditates on it day and night. It's always on his mind. Just like, you know, just like when you love a person. They're, they're always on your mind. And, and you want to do what's pleasing to them. So let me ask you this, this morning. How, how are you making God's commands, God's word, your delight? I mean, it brings you pleasure to take those words in. You're, you're exercising watchful care over those commands so that you can carry out His revealed will. I mean, what, what a privilege it is to know. I mean, think about other places on earth and other times of history when, when it would be rare, impossible for you to actually have a copy of God's Word in your own language. Think how accessible the Word of God is to you. I mean, now you don't, you don't have to have it in a codex anymore, in a, in a book. You, you, can, you have it on your phone. You have this computer with you, and you can, if, if, if you don't understand it, you can, you can check out several translations. Or sli- all, if, if you can't read well because you've always had some learning disability, you can turn on the audio, and you can, I mean, the accessibility of the Word of God to us is, is phenomenal. It's, it's like the greatest there's ever been in, in history. The question is how much you actually value it. How much you actually value it. And it, and it just makes total logical sense that if you actually know God, if, if you know God, you're going to love him. And if you l- love him, you want to hear what he has to say. And so let me encourage you to, to let, let God be your shepherd every day, every hour of the day by keeping his commands, watchful care over his commands and his word. And that leads to the third great characteristic of those whose lifestyle shows they know God, and that is imitation of God's Son. Second part of verse 5. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walks. So here we are with assurance again that we are in Him, that we have a living connection with Jesus. In Him is a characteristic way of describing someone who is relying on Jesus. Um, one of my favorite illustrations of what, of what faith actually is and describing reliance is 
is to give the illustration of there's a flood coming, you're on this island, the flood's going to cover the island, and there's a boat that floats by. If you're going to be saved, you have to what? Get in the boat. You can, you can know the specs for the boat. You can take pictures of the boat. You can draw paintings of the boat. But until you get in the boat, you're not going to be rescued. Getting in the boat is reliance. In fact, look at all the people that are putting full reliance on the chair they sat in for this service. You have full confidence it will hold you up the whole time, that it will not give way. And believe me, if it started to give away, you'd see a lot of people popping up, right? So this is reliance, someone relying on Jesus, another way of saying it, they're in him. And, and then John uses the words to abide in him, to remain, to stay. It's, it's the idea of living your life in connection with Jesus. You ever spent some time with the person that you, you really enjoy spending time with, but they've only got five minutes? So I've got to go. And you know the feeling of like, man, I wish we had more time. Okay. Abide in him. Don't give Jesus five minutes and run. Stick with him all day long. Abide in him. Rely on him every moment. I mean, John is using language like Jesus used in John 15. He says, abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, except you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. From apart, for apart from me, you can do nothing. And so he's, he's laid out two things. You, you can do nothing unless you're abiding, but if you do abide in him, you will do lots of things. You, there'll be lots of fruit. He says, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. You prove that you're actually following me, that you're actually learning from me. So what does it look like if you are living life abiding in him? What, what does that look like? But when the New Testament writers want to describe one's everyday, ordinary lifestyle, they use the term, very simple term, walk. It literally means to walk about. So it's not even walking from one place to another. It's like walking about. It's like having a tracer on you, and somebody can, you know, you know your Find Friends app or whatever, they can see wherever you are, okay, as you walk about, that, that's your everyday kind of life. And the idea is that wherever you are and whatever you do in your walkabout life, this is how you live. He ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Well, what do we know about how Jesus lived his daily life when he was on earth? Well, one of the first things is I was thinking about this, and you could add to the list, but I thought, you know, he's, he's prayerful. He stays in communion with God the Father. He's, he's always taking time to pray. Uh, and even in the middle of ministry, he'll look to heaven and pray. He's truthful. I mean, Christ is teaching God's word. He's, he's sharing, preaching the good news wherever he went. He said, this is what I was sent for. So he's, he's really gospel-centered. He's calling people to faith. 
he, he didn't pursue wealth and power and glory for men like the common religious leaders of the day. He was on mission for God. It, it was all about what his father wanted. He, he discipled others. Spent time with them. It, it meant humble service. He washed their feet. He, he touched lepers to heal them. He showed compassionate care toward the needs of others and, and ultimately expressed in sacrificing himself for the good of others. And, and that sacrifice is actually from the, from the moment he became a human being. He, he humbled himself and took the form of a servant. He, he became a human being. I mean, think of, of the leap from God to man. And, and yet he did that sacrificed himself for the good of others, and poured out his lifeblood on the cross. I mean, Christ had time for people that were often overlooked and undervalued, if not despised. Women and children and tax collectors and and Samaritans, uh, mixed race with, with mixed religion, and the poor and people that were known to be sinners that were ostracized from society, Jesus would spend time with. And Jesus would minister to. He spent time with sinners without participating in their sin. He brought holy influence into whatever arena he went into. The reality is you can't be indulging your sin and at the same time be enjoying closeness with Jesus. You have to choose. Moment by moment, day by day, step by step. And sometimes the reason we fail so miserably in fighting our sin is that we're trying to do it without being close to Jesus. And, and over the years, I've seen this time and time again. There's some besetting sin. There's some difficulty. And there's, there's all this protocol and, and strategy for trying to get a handle on it. But it's done kind of cut off from all the other spiritual disciplines. It's cut off from actually walking with Jesus. You, you can't solve the problem just by focusing on the problem. You've got to recognize that our sin is, is an expression of, of distance from God. And the first thing that needs to happen is I need to come back to God. If you will stay close to Jesus, you can say no to sin. Paul puts it this way in Galatians. If you walk in the Spirit, you won't fulfill the desires of the flesh. Now, there are sins that we commit. You know, it's not intentional. It, it happens. Um, there are other sins that, that have particular appeal to us, and on those sins, what we call presumptuous sins, those, those sins call us to make a choice. Do, do I want the happiness of closeness with God, or do I want do I want the promised happiness of pursuing this sin? And, and sometimes there are patterns that we know are wrong patterns, and we say, well, it's just the way I am. No, it's not. It, it, it's not the way you are in Jesus. It, it may be the way you are without him, but with him, if you're walking with him, you can put that sin to death. You, you, can, you can deal with it. But, it, but it's... It's about your closeness to God. In fact, this whole section is about I know God. It, it's about being close to God. And, and God 
has provided Jesus. It's God alone that can actually free you from sin anyway. It's God alone that can forgive your sins and cleanse you. So your closeness to God is absolutely key. You're walking with Jesus. So are, are you walking? Your walkabout daily journey, are you, are you walking that journey on your own? I mean, well, are you leaving Jesus at the church door? Are you leaving, maybe you even have morning devotions. When you close your Bible and you walk out the door, did you, do you leave Jesus at home? Or are you following Jesus throughout the day? Following him each step of the way. Remember, Jesus says, I'm with you all the days. So, deny yourself. Sin is basically selfishness. I'm looking out for myself. And, and it's actually a deceptive selfishness because in the interest of trying to promote myself or trying to indulge myself, I actually hurt myself. But, but deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. Now, it's counterintuitive, but that's the path to happiness. Because walking with Jesus is happiness. That's the best life there is. And think about the payoff, the life worth living, the fruitfulness now, and then eternity. So let me encourage you to, as you begin each day, make sure you're starting with an awareness of Jesus, a trusting in him and and looking to him as you walk through your day to lead you and guide you, to help you know what to say and what to do and how to think in a way that would be pleasing to him and that would be helpful to other people. This is this, is this practical Christian living that's made possible by your relationship to God through Christ. And people who know what that is, people who actually do know God, have this aversion to sin, they have a high regard for God's word, and then they imitate God's son. It's, it's a personal thing. And so, if this doesn't describe you, may, may I invite you, encourage you to pursue this way of life? I mean, this isn't playing church. This isn't doing religion. This is actually... <laughs> this is actually finding the reason for which you're created. You're creating God's image to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And this could be your life now. It doesn't matter what your age. You could be five years old and live this way. You can be 95 years old and live this way because of Jesus. So let's walk with him. Let's enjoy what Christ died and rose again to give us, the lifestyle of those who know God. Let's pray. God, we come to you and Our confidence is not in ourselves, but in Christ Jesus, your Son. And Lord, I pray for those friends in our number here today who haven't yet got in the boat. They haven't yet transferred their allegiance, their trust to Jesus. And with all the things they've added into their life, they, this battle against sin is, is just a losing battle. 
um, this hope, the joy, the fruitfulness just isn't there. So God, I pray that you would woo them by your spirit to Jesus, the safe place for us. May they find their security, their safety, their meaning for life, their direction in life in him. And Lord, I know that many here are already trusting in Jesus, but Lord, every one of us can get sidetracked. Every one of us can forget that we're not here by our own merits. Um, Every one of us at times needs the comfort of the gospel when we've fallen or needs the call of the gospel when we've just gotten kind of uh, cavalier and, and sloppy about the way that we're living life. Lord, may we live to your glory. May we demonstrate by the way we live, may we enjoy by the way we live that we actually do know God. For it's in Christ's name we pray.